Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you guys this morning. My name is John McGlott, and I am the pastoral assistant here at WSBC. So if you have questions about anything, I can at least find the answers for you uh, related to our church. Not related to everything, but just related to our church. (laughs) This morning we're going to be in Nehemiah 2. So if you can go ahead and start navigating there in your copy of God's Word. It's also printed in the bulletin, and you can follow along there. Luke preached last week from Nehemiah 1, and we're going to continue now in Nehemiah 2. So I have a question for you. Who is in charge? This is something that I, from time to time, ask my children. Who's in charge? It usually comes when they tell me no, that they don't want to eat their vegetables, or no, they don't want to go to bed right now. And I have to remind them through this question that that I'm actually in charge, and their mom is actually in charge. So I ask them, who's in charge? And they usually answer with, you guys. <laughs> because they know uh, that we're in charge. But who's in charge of your life? Who's in control? Who, who gets to pick what happens to you? We may think that we're in charge of our lives. Pop culture to- tells us that destiny is in charge of our lives. And sometimes that we can take control of our own destiny. I'm not sure exactly what that means. And I'm not sure that I trust this destiny. I don't know if destiny likes me or what if they're out to get me. Or what if they really want to just ruin my life. I don't know if I want to leave my life up to just destiny. Well, we work hard to control our lives. Many of us really want our own little kingdom. It might be our cubicle at work. It might be just a little space at our house. But we want our own little kingdom and we want to be king or queen of our own little kingdom. You might experience something like that at work about control. You want to do your things, but maybe your boss tells you to do something different. And you think, ah, maybe one of these days, that'll be me. I'll be the one in charge. I'll get to pick what I get to do and what others get to do. So who's in charge? Who's in control of your life? Well, there's a few scary questions that come along with control as we think about Uh, who's in charge and who's in control. We we think about your boss, if they're in control of what you do at work, if they're in charge, well, what if they're not competent to lead? What if they're not able to lead well? Another scary question is, what if they're not looking out for your good? What if they're only looking out for their good? They only want their career to advance, but they're not really concerned about yours. Well, in the passage that we're going to look at today, Nehemiah tells of his experience with his boss, the king, but not just any king. He's the king. He's the most powerful king in the world at that time. He's the most powerful man in the world at the time of Nehemiah. But we see that Nehemiah does not see this powerful boss as the answer to his problems. Nehemiah knows who's really in charge. So follow along as I read Nehemiah 2. Verses 1 through 10. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, 
lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So the main message of this passage, the main point of the sermon today, is very simple but very important. This is it. God is in control and He is good. God is in control and He is good. God is in control and He is good. So Nehemiah's, the book of Nehemiah is a memoir. It's Nehemiah writing about his experience of how God directed him to Israel to rebuild Jerusalem and to bring purity and order to the Jewish faith. So Nehemiah is writing from his experience. Chapter 1 tells us that he heard a bad report about Jerusalem. That Jerusalem was exposed and shamed because the walls were torn down and because the gates were burned. They were open to attack from enemy and they didn't look like much of a city anyways. They looked like a pile of ruins. When Nehemiah heard this, he started praying and fasting. He confessed his sin to the Lord And he also confessed the sin of his family and the sin of all the people of Israel. In addition to this prayer, he also asked God for favor for what he was about to do. And we see the king in chapter 2. The name of the king is Artaxerxes. He's obviously been reigning for 20 years. And King Artaxerxes inherited his kingdom from his father. And throughout his reign, the reign of Artaxerxes, he's faced many challenges to his authority. Egypt has been an almost constant irritation to him as they want to gain independence from Artaxerxes' kingdom. Other provinces have, as well have been rebelling against his rule. So it's very important to this king that he have people around him that he can trust. He needs to know that his servants and those who are around him are people he can trust and are loyal to him. Nehemiah was a servant of the king, but not just a particular, not just a any servant. He was a specific, had a specific position of cupbearer. 
This was really important to the king that the cupbearer be someone that he can trust. The cupbearer would taste the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned before the king would drink of it. So King Artaxerxes trusted Nehemiah and trusted him with his life. He was helping to protect the king. So at this stage in the narrative, Nehemiah is bringing the wine to King Artaxerxes. It's probably some sort of a party or celebration because it says when the wine was before him. It'd be similar to this time of year. We could say when the mooncakes are before us. And we all know what time of year that is and what's going on. So this is the clue that this was a, a festival or celebration. The wine was before him. Now the chapter starts saying in the month of Nisan. Chapter 1 started in the month of Chislev. Which is four, there's four months difference between those two. So there's four months between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So for those four months, Nehemiah has been praying and fasting and weeping and confessing and asking God for help. It's a long time to wait. Verse 1 also says, Now I had not been sad in his presence. So it seems that Nehemiah has been in the king's presence during that time, but he's not been sad. He's not let it shown that he's mourning and weeping over Jerusalem. This shows that he trusts God with God's timing. If he wasn't sure if God was going to answer his prayer, he might have rushed into a question to King Artaxerxes. But he's not been sad in his presence. He's waiting until the right moment. He's trusting God to provide that right moment. The Bible shows other times when people have had to wait. Abraham waited 25 years before Isaac was born, after God told him he was going to have a baby. Joseph waited several years in prison after being wrongly accused before he was set free. The people of Israel were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt before God delivered them. Even Moses spent 40 years in the desert before God called him to lead the people out of Egypt. And then Israel again spent another 40 years in the wilderness, wandering around before they went into the promised land. So we can see the example all throughout Scripture of people needing to wait, having to wait on the Lord. So how could Nehemiah wait like this? It seems like his anxiety would be too much to, to take, too, too much to handle. But he trusted God. He trusted that God was in control of the situation. He knew that God was able and that God was good. We see later on that Nehemiah declares God's, God's goodness. If you skip down to verse 8, he says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. At the very end of verse 8, the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah is trusting in God's goodness to provide. So God is in control and he's good. So the first point for this morning is we must be willing to wait. As Christians, we must be willing to wait. And like Nehemiah, we can wait because we know that God is in control and that he's good. This really seems like a time of waiting for a lot of us. Many people are waiting for the borders to open so that they can travel back home or that family members can join them where they are or someone can go back to work or back to school. 
You know, many of us have been separated from family and friends for a, a long time, and we're waiting until we have the opportunity to see them again. Some of us are waiting on circumstances to change. We wish something was different in our life. Some may be single and want to be married. Some may be married and want to have kids. Some may be, some may be married with kids and are waiting for some peace and quiet. Maybe we're waiting for better health or for a better job. Maybe we're ready to go and to serve. Some people may, be, may, may want to go as a missionary to serve God in another place. But they're waiting for those doors to open up, and right now they're not open. It seems like it's a time of waiting. I think all of us are waiting on something. We may feel like David in Psalm 6 when he said, But you, O Lord, how long? Nehemiah may have prayed that same thing. You, O Lord, how long? But Nehemiah gives us a a good example of waiting well in chapter 1. What does he seem to spend his time doing? He's seeking God's face. He prays, he fasts, he mourns, confesses his sin. He's interceding for people. He's confessing the sins of his family, confessing the sin of his people. He's spending time seeking God's face growing in his faith in the Lord and turning to him. So we must believe the Bible's message that God is in control. He has the power and the resources to complete all of his purposes, and that includes all his purposes in our lives and with us. And we also must believe that those purposes are good for his people. God's purposes are good. So we must be willing to wait because God is in control and God is good. And to put it another way, I borrow this from Charles Spurgeon, a paraphrased quote. You're exactly where God wants you to be because he loves you and he cares for you. I hope you know this, and I really want all of us to understand this, that we're exactly where God wants us to be. And it's out of his love and his care for us that we are here. We might be waiting on something that we really want. We might be waiting on something that would be glorifying to God. Just like Nehemiah was waiting on the opportunity to go help Jerusalem, but he was still waiting. So you're exactly where God wants you to be because he loves you and cares for you. Notice that Nehemiah's faith is in God. And he's also been planning what he's going to do when the king Artaxerxes gives him the opportunity. You see, as we went through this, that as we read through this, we could see how he's ready with questions. We need this thing. I need these letters and the wood to build these things. He's also planning, so he's praying, but he's preparing himself for God to open those opportunities, to open the door. So, as waiting well is seeking God's face, and is also preparing ourselves for what God is going to do in us and through us. So in verse 2, let's continue looking at the, at, what Nehemiah, at the story that Nehemiah is telling. Nehemiah is giving the king some wine. He's not made it obvious that he's sad, but the king sees anyways. This indicates they must have had a close relationship. You know, if you're close to someone, it's hard to hide when you're sad or when your emotions are off. 
So the king says, Why is your face sad, seeing you are sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Nehemiah says then, he confesses that then I was very much afraid. So the king notices, uh, maybe because Nehemiah had been fasting for four months, he may have looked thin and sickly. So the king knew something was going on. But Nehemiah was afraid too. He responded with fear. This could have been because this was a party. Everyone was supposed to be happy. They're drinking wine. This is a good time. Everyone should celebrate and smile. The servant should at least be happy and smiling. So to have a sad servant at a celebration could really kill the mood in the room. So I think Nehemiah was afraid that this would be a bad thing, that the king would see this as something bad. King Artaxerxes was known to be unpredictable because he had so many worries about people not being loyal to him. He had so, many, so much rebellion going on. He was actually unpredictable. And whether that started the rebellion or was a result of the rebellion, whatever it was, he was an unpredictable man. And Nehemiah knew this. But we see that Nehemiah pushes through. He's very much afraid. But then in verse 3, he says, Let the king live forever. So he starts off with a little bit of flattery. Let the king live forever. This is probably a common phrase to the king. Everyone would say this to start off so that the king knew they were, you were loyal to him. And then he says, why should I not be sad? Because the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins. Notice he doesn't mention Jerusalem. This mentioning the name of Jerusalem could have been a trigger for Artaxerxes' great anger because Jerusalem had been rebellious at one point previous to this. So it could have been a, could have been a buzzword. He didn't want to be a, kill the mood of the party by being sad and bring up this city of rebellious people. So he cleverly says, the city, the place of my father's graves. So Artaxerxes knows that Nehemiah is talking about Jerusalem. He also knows that he wants something. Verse 4, he says, what are you requesting? He knows Nehemiah is not just making small talk or trying to share his feelings. He's, he's sharing this because he wants something. He has a request to make. And then we see Nehemiah's response. So first he responded in fear when the king called him out on his sadness. Now when the king says, what are you requesting? Nehemiah turns to God and says, so I pray to the God of heaven. Now we need to look real quick. At who is this God of heaven? This is not the first time he's mentioned this in the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 1, verse 5, Nehemiah prays, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That is the God of heaven who he's praying to here while he's talking to the king. So he asked the king if he can go. Imagine the relief that he has once he asks. Because he's been thinking about this for months. He's been anticipating it. He probably had a rush of adrenaline when the king says, Why are you sad? Because that fear came over. Oh no. And then he pushed through with the courage to ask the king. And he finally asked. And he knows he's doing what God has for him to do. That must have been a relief 
to have asked the king. The king says, how long are you going to be gone? And when will you return? There in verse 6. And then he says, the king says that he can go. The king agrees. But because Nehemiah is prepared, he jumps in with more questions. He doesn't just leave it at that. He knows what he needs to accomplish what God has given him the desire to do. He's done his homework beforehand. And apparently, he's not only been praying before he talked to King Xerxes, but he's been planning as well. So how do you think Nehemiah could approach the king with such boldness and courage? Well, it's because Nehemiah's highest allegiance was not King Artaxerxes, it was the God of heaven. This is evident and a little bit ironic that he's talking to the most powerful man in the world at that time. He has the king's attention. The king says, what do you want? He has all the riches. He has all the resources. And Nehemiah, in the middle of that, prays to God. It shows that his alliance is much higher than King Artaxerxes. And he recognizes who's really in charge, who's really in control. And that is the God of heaven. He mentions heaven as the God of heaven, heaven being above. So even in the terms that he uses, he's showing that he understands that God is in control. So God is in control and he's good. The next part of the story, Nehemiah then goes to Jerusalem. It says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. This is verse 9. And gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So he goes with letters of intent, letting people know what he's doing. And also he has some bodyguards with him also. He may have asked for those, or maybe the king knew he needed them. However he got them, he has protection from the king. He's probably anticipated, and rightly anticipated, that he would encounter trouble from the Samaritan leaders. So the leaders that are mentioned here, Sanballat, is the leader of the Samaritans. And the Samaritans probably were in control of that area, of all of Judah and Samaria, which is very close to there. That whole province would have been under their control. And they knew, to them, the only good Israel was a weak Israel. They knew that as long as Israel was weak, then they could be in power. But if Israel were to gain strength, the walls would be rebuilt, and they started to have political and military power, then their control of the area would be at risk. So they needed to keep them, at a minimum, they needed to keep them weak. Now in verse 10, see the very last. It says, It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. We see here that Nehemiah, he reveals here what his mission is all along, and that's to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That's what he prayed about. That's what he's been working toward. That's what gave him the drive and the courage to be able to talk to King Artaxerxes is to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And it's not just Nehemiah that's doing this. God is working through Nehemiah to complete his good purposes for his people. God promised to be faithful to them, as we see Nehemiah recount in his prayer in chapter 1. God promised to be faithful to his people, and now he's doing that and using Nehemiah to accomplish it. 
So this brings us to point number two today. The first one was as Christians, we must be willing to wait. Number two, as Christians, we must seek the good of God's people. So we can see that Nehemiah is an example of seeking the good of God's people. So as Christians, we must seek the good of God's people. What did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah risked a lot. He was scared of King Artaxerxes, but he went ahead and talked to him anyways. Put himself in a position to be able to ask this request. He trusted God, and his trust for God outweighed his fear of the king. Nehemiah also used his mind, he used his skills to be able to work for the good of God's people. He was good at planning. He had a position as cupbearer. He had a position of influence. He was willing to use that for the good of God's people. Later in Nehemiah, we'll see how he used his good leadership skills that God has given him for the good of God's people. Something that may be easy to miss is that he also sacrificed and he went. So as we seek the good of God's people, we may need to sacrifice and go. We must be willing to sacrifice and to go as we seek the good of God's people. Nehemiah moved to Judah. Judah is not a place of comfort. Think about the difference between being at the king's side in the citadel, which is the capital, compared to Judah at this time. The walls are broken down. He apparently had to ask the king for wood for his own house. So he doesn't have a place to stay in Jerusalem. So he may have been camping the first few nights he was there until his house could get built. This was not comfortable like what he was used to living in. So we too should be willing to go and to serve where it's not comfortable. Another way that we can seek the good of God's people is through church membership. So if you're not a member of a local church, I challenge you, to consider becoming a member. Not just consider. I think you should become a member of a local body, of a local church. If you're a Christian and you're not a member of a local church, then you're at risk of not seeking the good of God's people. We don't become members of a church only because of what we get. There are benefits to being a member, but we're not just members because we benefit. We're members because we also benefit the body as well. We all have things to give. If we are Christians and we have the Holy Spirit living in us, then we have things to give. We can listen to someone. We can share our experiences. We can study the Bible with someone. We don't have to be amazing teachers. We don't even have to be a Christian for that long. But to be a good member of a church, we're already equipped to do that. We all, we all have things that we can give to the body. This might be being part of a small group Bible study as well. If you're hesitant to go because you haven't studied as long as someone else, or you feel like you, you can't understand what people are talking about when they, when they read, or you read slowly or poorly, whatever these holdups are, you still have things to give by going and taking part in a study. And it might be helpful to God's people that you be there. As Christians, we must seek the good of God's people. 
Another way that we do this is sharing our faith. You see, we don't know where God's people are. Some of God's people are not God's people yet. But God knows who those people are. So we serve God's people by telling people about Jesus. Because they might become God's people. And we don't really know. So we share our faith with people that are around us. Share what God has done for us. Even if we don't sound wonderful, even if we mix up some words, or we forget to say this Bible verse or that one. But by sharing our faith, then we are seeking the good of God's people. So continue sharing your faith. Become a member of a church if you're not a member yet. Be involved in a Bible study. Study the Word together, and that's how we grow. Seek the good of God's people together. So Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem to seek the good of God's people. His story in this part that we've read, this little snapshot of his memoir, points us to God as the true king. He's above King Artaxerxes. He's above all of our bosses. He's above every other person. He is the highest authority. He's the one that's in charge. But we know more than what Nehemiah knew at this time. We're blessed that we have the whole Bible, including the New Testament. So we get to see God's story played out in a larger view. So our third point for today is this. Well, first, our, our first two points were for Christians. We must, as Christians, we must be willing to wait. As Christians, we must seek the good of God's people. But this last point is most important, and it's for everyone. The last point is that Jesus must be our king. Jesus must be our king. No, Nehemiah does not mention Jesus in what we read. So if you're trying to look over, where did he say Jesus? He doesn't say the name. But what Nehemiah is talking about here, and his story is a foreshadowing. It points to Jesus in a couple of key ways. So like Nehemiah, Jesus was sent to Jerusalem by the good hand of God. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem. On his way, he had letters from King Artaxerxes. It gave him the authority to be there and to act. Jesus arrived with the message from God. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus brought authority from God himself. And unlike Nehemiah, Jesus was not sent to Jerusalem to build a wall. He was sent to die on a cross for all sin. Nehemiah went to Jerusalem because the city was exposed and vulnerable and shamed. Jesus went to the cross and he himself was exposed and vulnerable and shamed for the sake of God's people. After dying, on the third day, God displayed his power, his control, and his goodness by raising Jesus from the dead. And now Jesus is with God at his right hand in the position of power and authority. And think about the Israelites in Jerusalem when Nehemiah arrived. 
They lived in a city that was very dangerous. There was no wall. There was no gates. They were very poor. They had almost no income. They were a remnant left over of this great place. They were living under the authority of the Samaritans who didn't like them and wanted to keep them down. They were full of shame and disgrace. Well, the Bible says that without Jesus, we're all like those Israelites. Spiritually speaking, we are poor and we are full of shame and disgrace. Not only that, we're dead spiritually without Him. We're full of shame and decay. We have no hope to recover ourselves. But friends, it's by faith in Jesus and faith in Him alone that we can be saved from this terrible condition. As sinful people, we don't deserve God's mercy. We deserve His punishment. But by God's goodness, He sent Jesus to take our punishment on Himself and to die in our place. And God, because He is all-powerful, raised Jesus from the dead so that we could live with Him forever. So Nehemiah's work also points to Jesus in one other way. And that's the second coming of Christ. See, Jesus, who is with God now, will return again. He's going to return to Jerusalem. After the judgment, after Satan and sin are finally defeated for good, Christ will come not to repair Jerusalem with a wall, but come with a new Jerusalem, the perfect place, the place that will be inhabited by all of God's people for the rest of time. And not only all of God's people, but God himself will live there with his people. That will be a great place to live in. That will be a wonderful Jerusalem, better than the one that Nehemiah helps to rebuild. In the new Jerusalem, Jesus will reign as king and his people will live in his goodness. So friends, Jesus must be our king. So I ask you at the beginning, who's in charge? Well, we can see from Nehemiah that God is. God is in control and he is good. Think about that this, think about that. This week as you go to work, when you don't like your boss's control and want to push back against it, when you listen to the latest pop song and they talk about controlling your own destiny, when you're angry about having to wait again, think about who's in charge, who's in control. Friends, God is in control and God is good. So Jesus must be our king. Let's pray. O oh Lord God of heaven, you are great and awesome. What a blessing that we get to experience you being in control and being good. God, we praise you that you are both in control and good. If you were in control but not good, it would be devastating for us. God, thank you for being good. Thank you, God, that out of your goodness you sent Jesus to die in our place that we would have hope for the future. Pray that we would acknowledge you this week as Lord, as God, as King of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.